0: Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Andre. Or in church. I don't know about you, I felt a particular joy and privilege getting to join in worshipful song this morning, so thank you to Luke and his team. Um, We take that for granted what a privilege it is to have the ability to do that and to be led so well in that. Um, whether you are new to our church or are a member, have been here as oh, far back as we go, five years, um, you're all invited to our congregational meeting coming up on the 26th, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, February 26th. Um, but in preparation for that meeting, we have meeting packets available. You can pick them up after the service. Um Next week there will be Q&A, a a and a available spe- specifically uh, looking at the budget portion of our meeting, the February meetings where we uh, try to, before the Lord, make best plans as we can for the year of ministry ahead. And if you're a member, we'd love for you to look at that and come so that ask questions so by the time we get to a vote, your vote can be as informed as possible. Um, whether you're a member or not, please come to the meeting and the meal afterward. We'd love for you to get to know our church in that way and it's a great opportunity to meet some new people in our fellowship here at Castleton. Well, the passage that was just read is undoubtedly one of the more well-known sayings of Jesus in the entire Bible, Uh, but let's not let that fool us because even a well-known word has a particular challenge for us this morning, and so we need to ask the Lord's help for that endeavor. Would you join me in prayer before we begin our study? Father, um, we thank you for your word that speaks to us, for sayings that are so memorable that um, we even take for granted uh, what those parts of your word say. Even we thank you for the parts of your word that are more difficult and maybe we didn't memorize as children growing up. Uh, With all of it though, Lord, we need your help to approach it with humility, to be those who are humble and contrite who tremble at your word. So Father, will you help us to do that with this familiar text? Not let us fall into the trap of complacency, but we hear of the, what you require of us to love you with all we have and to place no limits on our love for others. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name, amen. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? If you are my age or older, I'm sure you heard a melody to those words as I read them. Um, If you're my age or younger, uh, you probably know the melody, but not from the original. Uh, Those words came from Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And the younger generation knows that from Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is a riff on Mr. Rogers. Um, I like kids' TV shows. I loved Mr. Rogers growing up. Um, But the reason I bring up Mr. Rogers is not because I like TV shows. It's because Mr. Rogers was far more profound than most of us realize. Um, The man that Uh, We know, as Mr. Rogers, was himself a convinced Christian. um, And he saw something in society that he thought was not right. He saw that television programs, in particular, were not serving children. They were giving them expectations that were not good, and teaching them behaviors that would set them up for failure, and producing all sorts of anxiety in the minds and hearts of kids. So Mr. Rogers set out to correct that with a show designed to be accessible and encouraging, and to love children, um, to love them as a neighbor should. Uh, So that question that Mr. Rogers asks, would you be my neighbor, turns out to be far more profound than we realize. Uh, Especially when you realize that there are some people that think the answer to it should be no. Uh, Philosopher Sigmund Freud said that to love a neighbor as yourself should neither be desired Nor is it even possible. Well, far to the contrary, this morning we'll see that Jesus requires nothing less than that from his disciples. And that properly understood, you don't need philosophy to understand that question. You, in fact, need theology. Because what you believe about God and your relationship with him has everything to say about your obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, We're going to see this morning that according to Jesus... If you love God, then you can place no limits on your love of others. If you love God, then you can place no limits on who you must love. Uh, We'll see that in a back and forth between Jesus and a Bible answer man of the ancient world who uh, goes between two cycles of questions and answers, and along the way reveals a heart far from the mark and a perfect law of God with expectations that we would place no limits on who we would love. We'll see that in two sections following those two back and forth questions and answers with Jesus and a lawyer in his day. Uh, The two points will be as follows. First in verses 25 through 28, we'll see the question, how do I inherit? How do I inherit? Then in verses 29 through 37, we'll see the question, Who must I love? Who must I love? And in all this, we'll see that if we love God, then we can place no limit on who we must love. Uh, Let's begin that first section. How do I inherit verses 25 through 28? Uh, If you were with us last week, we studied a passage that ended with Jesus rejoicing over something strange that the poor, pitiable group of disciples that he had gathered around himself, that the Father had revealed the kingdom to them, and that he had hidden it from another group, the powerful and connected spiritual elites of his day. Well, our passage this week shows exactly one of that former, latter category coming to have a conversation with Jesus. Uh, We're introduced to him. We're told, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, uh, the lawyers back in those days uh, weren't referring to people that would go into the courtroom the way we think of a lawyer today. They're, they're more of a, a Bible answer man, an expert in theology, teasing out the deep things of God and the requirements those deep things of God have for all of us. Uh, a lawyer was a very well-connected spiritual elite of the day Someone not to be trifled with, and someone with a great deal of authority. Uh, but this Bible answer man comes to Jesus with both a bad question and a bad motive. Uh, the bad question is right there, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, that question sounds good on the surface, Till so you actually think about it. It asks what you must do, that's an action you must take, in order to inherit Inheritance is not something you accomplish or earn. Inheritance is something that you get by virtue of a relationship. You inherit a house from someone related to you when they pass on. Well, the lawyer here mixes these two categories and he asks what I must do to inherit eternal life, to be accepted by God forever and the courts of heaven and a relationship with him. Well, that's a bad question. We'll get back to that in a second. But notice also that it came with bad motives. Uh, He's not honestly asking this question to Jesus because he wants a good answer. No, he's doing this to test him. Uh, That's a way of saying, at best, he's sizing Jesus up. More likely, he's trying to put Jesus in his place. Uh, But Jesus is far too smart for any of the tricks, even of the spiritual elite of his day. And he knows a bad motive, and he knows a bad question when he hears it, which is why Jesus very deftly answers his question with a question of his own. In verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He points the lawyer back to the scriptures themselves, in essence, telling the Bible answer man, show me chapter and verse and show your work. How do you answer the question? Now, to his credit, the lawyer does a good job of responding. He answered in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your uh, strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's a really, really good response. Um, Dr. Al Mohler points out that there are two, the two commands, both from the Old Testament, would be very unusual to put together it in that way. Uh, So unusual, in fact, that some commentators think that this guy must have actually heard Jesus say the exact same thing preaching somewhere else. That's possible. Uh, Now, the way his answer comes together, though, it has to do with two separate commands. One's in Deuteronomy 6. That's the command to be fully devoted to the Lord God of Israel. Um, Every Israelite would have known that by heart. Uh, If you were a faithful Israelite man, you had to recite it twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. They would have known that. It would be in their bones. And they would have understood it meant total devotion to God. Uh, The second verse that he mashes into it, though, comes from Leviticus 19. It was far less quoted. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Your love for God is not sufficient To be able to fulfill the law of God, all he has revealed, and what he demands of us and his people. Now, for that, you also have to love the people around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer, for his part, gets this right. He answers these two things together, and we see in verse 23, I'm sorry, in verse uh, twenty-eight, Jesus affirms, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus uses this exact formula to say that this is what it takes to fulfill the entire law, full devotion to God and full hearted love for each and every one of our neighbors. Now, before I go any further, many evangelicals, when they read these verses, become a little nervous because it seems like in the way Jesus responds to this man, that he is teaching something like salvation by works. I mean, after all, the guy came asking, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And when he answered with obeying well enough in the categories of love toward God and people, Jesus said, right answer. You'll get eternal life if you do that. So is Jesus here contradicting Romans and the Apostle Paul and salvation by faith alone and grace alone? Well, I think for at least two reasons, the answer would be absolutely not. Um, First, I don't think Luke has anything like that in mind when he records this. Uh, As he puts together his gospel, the moment where Jesus says this thing is on the road toward Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, we will see the mission that Jesus is on to save sinners of all types. People who fail to keep the law of God perfectly, uh, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, the the most wicked sinners you can imagine, or the self-righteous. Jesus is the common Savior that all need. So Luke doesn't uh, put these two things in contradiction with each other. But I think secondly, realize that Jesus has the unique ability to know exactly who he's talking to. Uh, Jesus knows the heart of each and every one of us. And when he was speaking with that big, bad Bible answer man, he knew exactly what he was dealing with. A man who assumed he could do enough to be right with God. And as the conversation will reveal in a moment, a man who in fact wasn't even coming close to fulfilling his basic obligation to love his neighbor. See brothers and sisters, there's a danger that all of us have. A danger of assuming we can do enough that we can love our way into an inheriting eternal life. Um, it could be that you're here this morning And you came with a certain set of assumptions that are along those lines. Uh, Maybe you assume that you have been living a good enough life that one day God would see that your good works outweigh your bad works. And he would say good enough and welcome you into eternal bliss and happiness in heaven. Uh, The Bible tells us that by works of the law, no one will be saved. In fact, by works of the law, we will all be condemned. Even transgressing one of God's laws makes us guilty of all of it. And that means that each and every human that's existed, all the way back to the first ones in the Garden of Eden, we all stand before the perfect law of God as guilty under God's judgment. Uh, but there is another way. Uh, instead of hoping to inherit eternal life based on the perfection of your own obedience, instead, Looking to inherit eternal life because of the perfection of someone else's. That is, the man who said this word and gave this command, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, You see, Jesus lived the life perfectly in line with the law of God. He obeyed each and every one of its commands. Perfectly devoted to God in all things, loving him in everything he did. And perfectly loving his neighbor, even when it cost him. Jesus did all that for a reason, so that he could give up his life as a substitute for sinners who never could possibly work off their debt of sin. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins and declared right before God now and forever, and even to inherit eternal life, not because we earned it, but because he did. And because we enter into the family of God by our relationship with him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never trusted in Jesus in that way. Uh, Friend, a better question to ask than what must I do to inherit eternal life is what must I do to be saved? It's a much easier question to give an answer to. You must repent and believe in Jesus. If you do those things, then you will enter into a relationship with God starting right now. And it'll go on forever one day. An eternity with the God who made you in a loving relationship all because of what Jesus did. If you don't know how to do that, after the service, I'll be available. I would love to talk you through it, answer whatever questions you might have. But let's realize that as easy as it is for even people in our day to slide into this mindset of what must I do to inherit eternal life, it's even easy for Christians to subtly start to slide into that mindset. There's a documentary that came out about Mr. Rogers. Um, he was a pretty incredible guy. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Um, as I mentioned, he saw that TV show as a ministry toward the neighborhood of children in the community. But for all his virtue and for all of what I could tell to be his sincere belief, near the end of his life, It seems as if he slid into a sort of what must I do to inherit sort of mindset. His wife tells about what happened when he was on his deathbed. He became extremely concerned and asked her, am I a sheep? Now that seems like an odd question, but the way she interpreted it was he was struggling with whether he had done enough to be welcomed into heaven after he died She tried to assure him by telling him, if anyone's done enough, honey, it's got to be you. Uh, I wish I could have been there in that moment because that's the exact wrong advice to give someone. You, You don't look to your own work to give confidence for what your reception with God will be. You look to the work of Christ. Now, I don't know him personally, and it could be that was just a moment of weakness as his flesh was failing. But I have seen this play out in the hearts of enough Christians to know it's a real thing. We could very subtly start to slide into what must I do mindset instead of what has Christ done and how can I be assured of what I have inherited in him. So my dear brothers and sisters, maybe this week you need to recenter yourself on the promises of the gospel, of all that Jesus accomplished for you and all that you will surely inherit as a result. Uh, Realize that's one of the things that we do for each other every time we come to worship. When we gather on a Sunday morning, it's not just punching a card to fulfill our duty to God. And we also have a ministry to do to encourage one another. We sing songs that remind ourselves that nothing that we do could ever save us. But all that Jesus did guarantees that we will be saved. Uh, Later in the service, we're going to sing a song called Not in Me. As you sing it, uh, realize that you are participating in this encouraging each other, not to be in the do mindset, but a receive mindset and what you have in Christ. The words would go like this. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue, pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope, of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Oh, if that big, bad Bible answer man would have understood who it was who was talking to him. If he would have understood the perfect law of God and his own sin, he wouldn't have responded with such, self, uh, uh, with such uh, pride and uh, self-justification. He would have instead fallen at the feet of Jesus and humbly asked him to forgive him, a sinner, but the conversation has another joint to it, a second round between Jesus and the Bible answer man, in which it becomes obvious what his real problem is. And that brings us to our second question, who must I love in verses 29 through 37? Who must I love? Now, this part of the Bible, is if it's not the most famous story that Jesus tells, it has to be in the top three. Um, It is one of those stories that's so iconic and touching that people have it in their bones, just having lived in a culture that had enough people that read the Bible. But unfortunately, that familiarity oftentimes doesn't serve us well because there have been a number of of teachings related to this that I've heard that seem to miss the point of the parable that Jesus tells. Uh, They do so for two reasons. Uh, First, is they make the mistake of mistaking an par- of a parable for an allegory. Uh, an allegory is a story where uh, the characters and details represent something else. Uh, usually there's a number of them. They map onto the real world or some idea. So for example, the K- Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is very clearly representing Jesus Christ, right? And there's a whole bunch of details you could map from Aslan to Jesus. That's an allegory. Well, if you do that to the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, what you end up doing is telling a story about salvation. Maybe a very encouraging story because many preachers have good instincts. Some really good sermons have been preached along those lines. Uh, Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Um, He comes along and finds us beaten and bloodied, laying on the floor, helpless to save ourselves. But he picks us up. He pays our penalty He makes sure we are healed. You can see how that happens, right? Now, unfortunately, I don't think that's what Jesus intended by telling this story at all. uh, Because it's a parable, not an allegory. A parable is a story, yes, but it's a story with one central point. And all the details of the parable serve that one central point. We'll come back to what that point is, but if you keep that in mind, an allegory gets you way off base. Uh, The second thing it's as often remembered and taught as an isolated moral story. Uh, the, it's as if the verses before and after it just don't exist. And so it's a touching story of someone who engraved danger and need and a neighbor who comes along and helps. And isn't it so inspiring? Now, certainly we'll see that there are a number of legitimate applications along that line. But if we'll just read before the parable and after the parable, we'll see that there's a purpose. It's very easy to see that changes the meaning significantly. Now with that said, let's see this back and forth between Jesus and the Bible Answer Man a second time. Verse 29, but he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Uh, Luke tips us off. Again, this is a bad question. Um, It's a question designed to limit his burden of responsibility. It's a bit like a child at the dinner table. Son, you cannot get down and play until you have finished eating your dinner. Son responds, ah, but dad, what is my dinner? Uh, Is it just the mashed potatoes? Are four carrots enough? Five carrots enough, perhaps? Maybe half my chicken. Uh, You see, it's uh, by limiting your obligation, you can make it seem as if you have fulfilled everything. In this case, this lawyer seeking to justify himself, to show that he was in fact right with God, he would in fact inherit eternal life, he sought to limit the second of the two commands. Who is my neighbor really, Jesus? Jesus. Now, this wasn't an uncommon thought back then. There was lots of rabbinical teaching about how certain categories of people you were obligated to live out this command, the love of neighbor to, and others you were not. That's the question for the story of what we call the Good Samaritan. So then Jesus launches into the story. Uh, He tells us that there's a very plausible, if tragic, scenario Verse 30, there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. That was a well-known stretch of road. You went down from Jerusalem past a, a desolate area with lots of caves and crags along the side. Perfect, uh, a perfect setting for bandits and thieves to ambush you. And uh, so so many travelers were ambushed and robbed that it became known as the road of blood. Uh, so this is Jesus a bit like saying someone was walking down in the wrong side of the tracks in inner city Chicago when they got mugged, jumped, and left for dead. Well, that becomes the occasion. This man who's beaten and bloodied and dying there on the side of the road for three strangers to just happen to walk by randomly. Uh, the first of them, we see in verse 31, is a priest. Uh, priests back then were professional ministers that did their work in the temple. Uh, they were highly looked up to. It'd be a bit like saying a reverend on his way back from church came across a guy in the ditch, in trouble, left dying there by himself. Uh, But this holy man can't be bothered to stop and help this poor, beaten, bloodied guy dying in the ditch. So he doesn't stop. He doesn't help. He doesn't break a stride. He just goes on his way, ignoring him. There has been lots of attempts to understand why he does so, but the story doesn't tell us. Remember, it's a parable. The point is he doesn't stop. He keeps moving. Next, we have a Levite. Uh, Levites were a little lower on the pecking order. They were still professional ministers, but they're kind of like assistants to the priests. They did their ministry outside the temple. Uh, the Levite, the way it's written, it sounds as if he maybe gets a little closer. Maybe he looks down and sees the guy and winces and says, oof, that's going to leave a mark. But once again, he can't be bothered to stop. Gets to the other side of the road. He doesn't stop. He doesn't help leaves this guy in the ditch to die by himself. Now at this point, if you're hearing this as an ancient Israelite, you are thinking to yourself, uh, this is a parable that is about how bad the clergy are. This is about about the establishment religion, how corrupt they are. This is about, forget about the priests. What God cares about is your everyday Israelite, your faithful farmer who serves Yahweh. So the third guy, he's surely going to be Just a random Jewish guy that comes and helps. Well, the priests wouldn't, right? But that's not what Jesus does. Now, instead, Jesus does the most surprising thing of all in verse 34 but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. It's really hard to put it in today's categories. Um, There was so much hatred between Jews and Samaritans that this would have been the last person you would expect to be the hero of a story. It'd be a bit like a ISIS terrorist that uh, uh, that saves someone bleeding on the side of the road. Even that's not a perfect analogy. Uh, the Samaritans were the uh, worshipped the wrong way, they lived in the wrong place, uh, they, there were buckets of bad blood between them and the Jews, they hated each other and yet a Samaritan of all people is the one who comes and sees what happens and actually stops and has compassion. It would have been like a slap in the face to any Jew that heard it. Uh, this Samaritan goes to great lengths to make sure that this battered, bleeding man left for dead, in fact, can be saved. Uh, He gets down and he dresses his wounds. He uses wine and oil and gives him bandages. He, He gets off his own donkey, puts the man on top of it, probably has to walk the own way himself as a result. He takes him to a local inn, pays for a room, then he spends the night nursing the guy to make sure that he gets the best possible care. And then at the end of it, instead of just leaving him there and say, well, I got you this far, he leaves him two weeks worth of room and board with the innkeeper. And he promises the innkeeper, if the expenses get higher than that, I'll come back and I'll pay the rest. You can see why this is such a compelling story. It chokes you up just thinking about someone caring that much to stop save a life, and even to have such mercy and compassion that they would go the extra steps to make sure someone would recover. Uh, but remember, this is a parable, and a parable has a point. And right after the end of the parable, we could see the same thing we saw at the beginning. Look at how Jesus applies the parable. Verse 36, which of these three do you think Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. That's the question of this parable. Who is acting like a neighbor? Now notice Jesus did something very subtle. Uh, The Bible answer man started with the question, who is my neighbor? That's a question of identity. Jesus asked something else. Who is treating someone like a neighbor? That's a question of action. And by doing so, Jesus makes clear that it's not just about who we live close to or who we have bonds of blood with. It's about who we treat with the love, the love that we are supposedly have for God that reveals truly what we believe about God. Now, Jesus' logic is so tight that even the lawyer can't talk his way out of it. He realizes the conclusion, Begrudgingly, he says, the the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Uh, So what is Jesus teaching here? He is teaching that if you love God, then you can place no limit on who you are called to love. If you love God, there is not a person you will ever meet whom you are not called to love. Uh, Now, Being right before Valentine's Day, I need to clarify, I'm not speaking about the same type of love in every scenario. Certainly not romantic love toward everyone. That would be highly inappropriate and a violation of God's law. And yet, the sort of love that Mr. Rogers talks about, the love toward a neighbor, is something that we cannot limit from anyone. We need to have open gates to the neighborhood of our heart and realize if we meet a person then we are called to love them as our neighbor. Now, you can apply this a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, One way is to look at it from the cultural societal level. Um, Certainly, this rules out any sort of hatred or bigotry along the lines of skin color or ethnicity or cultures. Uh, Jesus says that's completely off limits in the kingdom of God. Uh, There's no limit on who you are allowed to love or who you must love and, and that means you cannot exclude someone just because they grew up somewhere else or eat different food or look differently than you. You can apply this in terms of age. You go to the far end of the age and stage scale. You get to people that have lived on this earth a long time. They start to lose their ability to do certain things for themselves. Just because someone becomes less capable does not mean that we have any less obligation to love them as a neighbor. Uh, I was talking to someone recently and they told me about the horrible reality that many nursing homes uh, often neglect and certainly don't love their residents the way they should. And it's an easy reason why. It's because oftentimes the people that are being neglected can't advocate for themselves. Uh, But that's a mindset of only the people that can hold me accountable deserve to be treated a certain way deserve my love. According to Jesus, that's not the case for people. If you're part of the kingdom of God, you're called to love everyone. Uh, You could do it the opposite way. Go to the very earliest stages of age and stage. Certainly to little children, uh, maybe as they're bouncing on mama or dad's knee in the middle of a church service. We should love them as best we can. Support the parents as they're letting them be in church. I, I think you can even go further back What about to the unborn? They certainly can't advocate for themselves. I think your pro-life principles can be plugged into this command to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, But honestly, as I've been turning it over in my mind um, this week, I think far less often than us failing to at least intellectually realize that we're called to love everyone, different types of people in this way, I think far more difficult is loving specific people in this way. Uh, I think most of us would agree that we should love everyone as our neighbor, and yet maybe there is someone who lives on our block that we find it particularly difficult to be loving toward. Or maybe there's someone in our family that we find it extremely difficult to be loving toward. I heard a story of um, a Christian family they had a very difficult neighbor move in next door. Uh, they tried to get off on a good foot with him. Uh, they introduced themselves. They smiled. They welcomed him into the neighborhood. But pretty quickly, a dispute broke out between something on their shared property line. Uh, after that, the guy became an absolute horror toward them. Uh, despite their efforts to make peace, he would scream at them and holler at them and say all sorts of nasty things behind their back. Uh, he even did nasty things. He taught his dog to do one particular type of nasty thing on their concrete driveway every morning. Um, He waited for moments for his hatred to go the furthest, like on Christmas Eve when he decided to use a BB gun to shoot out their house windows. Uh, Now that family had a really, really hard task to love a guy like that as their neighbor. They had other neighbors come to them and say, hey, do you want us to get rid of this guy for you? But they, because they took their role in the kingdom of God seriously, they decided they would do no such thing. Instead, they prayed for him. They continued to treat him with kindness and love. Uh, they tried to use the resources in the community to get him help and to limit how much evil he could do. And they did all of it with the expectation that they may never receive a kind word back from him. Uh, They did it because they took seriously that they love God. And that means there's no limit on whom they are called to love. Uh, Who is it in your life that maybe you have difficulty loving? Now, according to Jesus, love is not just a feeling. It it is an action. Uh, So if you find yourself maybe without warm fuzzies for someone, that does not excuse you from this command. In fact, that means you need to get to it all the more quickly. Jesus ends by telling the man, go and do likewise. Uh, Again, this doesn't mean we earn our way into uh, uh, inheriting eternal life. But it does mean that disciples of Jesus must put into action the love they've received from God, the love they claim to have for God, a love without limits. Who is it that God has in your life that you are called to love? Uh, Realize that you won't do it perfectly perfectly. Uh, Despite your best efforts, your attempts to treat someone well, to work for their good may backfire in your face. I I had one of those this week. I I saw something that wasn't right in my neighborhood. I tried to take some action to correct it out of a a pure heart, and I think I made things worse. (laughs) You know, when that happens, we are thankful that our salvation does not rest on how well we love our neighbor and yet we are still called to love them. So what do you do? How do you start? Best advice I've found came from C.S. Lewis. It is to start with the action, trusting God in faith that the feelings of love will follow. He said this, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Every person you meet, every single chance encounter brings with it a message from God. Put on the lips of that person. Would you be my neighbor? Uh, Will you love me the way you ought to as one who loves God? Uh, would we hear that call and with the grace that we've received through Jesus, uh, would we start loving people, even when we don't feel like it? Uh, would we trust that Jesus will be honored and even our own hearts will catch up with our actions? and that somehow, some way, to the glory of God, to the building of the kingdom of God, that us living out the command to love without limits is precisely what Jesus had for us today.